Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. And I'm telling you what you already know as you're finding Isaiah 61. I'm telling you what you already know as we move closer to the arrival of Christmas. The volume is beginning to be turned up on the songs of the season. Christmas music fills our ears as we step into elevators and walk through grocery stores and shopping malls. Christmas music reverberates from the radios in our cars and the crafted playlists we play on shuffle and repeat through our sound systems at home or our earbuds perhaps. As December 25th draws near, we might even find ourselves not just listening to Christmas music, but even singing along to our favorite carols and seasonal anthems. Raise your hand if you've been singing. Come on. show you. Better see a lot of hands up, man. We're going to start singing right now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the question I, I raise in all of this is in the midst of all those holiday classics, and can we be honest, there are a lot of them. I have been found myself surprisingly, because it is not one of my favorites, particularly taken with I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas this season. Don't know why. Maybe it was the kids' Christmas show, but it's been stuck as an earworm in my head. The question, though, in the midst of all those holiday classics, and there are many of them, are we singing God's favorite Christmas song? God's favorite Christmas song, you say. Not sure if I've heard that one, you might be thinking. Well, after today, we'll be able to say that no more. And more importantly, once we catch not just the words, but the music, we won't be able to stop singing its beautiful melody so that everyone can hear it. Now, for those who might think they're already in the know and might perceive that God's favorite Christmas song is being sung first somewhere in the nativity story contained in the early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew or Luke, I would say hopefully... You stopped and thought for a second, because hopefully at this point in our Advent sermon series, which has been focused on demonstrating how what we celebrate as Christmas begins to emerge long before the pages of the New Testament, you've learned to look a little bit farther back in your Bible. For indeed, as we are about to hear, the very first recording of God's favorite Christmas song was actually laid down in our passage today from the book of the prophet Isaiah chapter 61. Let's look at it together. The words will be on the screen. It reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations. And in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. 
And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (coughs) Excuse me. Sometimes we can idealize the past, the good old days, you know? We can idealize the past so that we remain stuck in the past rather than moving forward. We can become so fixated on things not being the way they used to be that we lose sight of the possibilities of something greater, of something better on the horizon. This is the backdrop against which God authors the song of Isaiah 61. For the people of Israel, it is a time of great expectation that is gradually being eclipsed by their growing disappointment. After decades, almost a century, of living in exile and watching their once great nations first split in half and then gradually fall one kingdom after the other, the people finally find themselves free to return to their native land. But, as the saying goes, you can't go home again. Try as we may, while we may fondly remember the days of our past, we can never recreate or relive them, no matter how hard we try. For the Israelites... The hopeful idea of their return, of finding salvation, their salvation in coming back to, what's, to where they once were, to what once was, immediately begins to crash against the reality of what they cannot rebuild. <clears throat> you see, many do not return to Israel and join the family reunion as expected. And those who do come back find themselves laboring in vain to restore the temple, the centerpiece of their sense of identity and community. They, they struggle to get the temple back to its former glory as well as to re- rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And in addition, while they have been freed to travel back to their homeland, their country is still one that remains under occupation, under, at this time, Persian rule. In short, things aren't what they used to be. But to a discontented people, lamenting the loss of their past and questioning their prospects for the future, God, through the prophet Isaiah, breaks out into a song about how the best is yet to come. Into the fatalism that so often overtakes our view of not only today, but also tomorrow. Before the continued cynicism of a broken world that insists the way it is now is the way that it will always be. Nothing ever changes, and we ought to accept the way things are because they could always be worse. In the midst of this fatalism and cynicism, the Lord sings a counter-narrative, one of things getting better, one of hope amid perceived hopelessness, 
and the assurance of victory before the presumption of defeat. God expresses, particularly in verse 3, this alternative vision of mourning turning into joy, of despair giving way to praise through a succession of vivid images, the most compelling of which involves using ashes as a metaphor. And in the ancient world, if you don't know, ashes were something people would place on their head, covering their face, perhaps even their whole body. And ashes served as an expression of their overwhelming grief, their profound sense of loss. Back then, ashes symbolized having been stung by death, of being utterly devastated, of having suffered a mortal blow. And to a people who absolutely see themselves covered in ashes, as having completely burned out, of their life being over, finished, done. The Lord, through Isaiah, sings of wiping away those ashes and replacing them with a crown of beauty. The beautiful crown envisioned by Isaiah is a garland woven from either laurel leaves or meadow flowers that's shaped into a beautiful headdress. Picture the sort of crown in the ancient world that would be placed on the head of the winner of an athletic contest or upon a bride on the occasion of her wedding day. To a people waving the white flag, ready to call it quits, preparing to give up, the Lord sings not of impending defeat, but of eventual triumph that will rise up out of the ashes of failure. But implied within this divine anthem, however, implied within this divine anthem is that the freedom being promised, the freedom being offered through this victory is not the freedom to go back to the way life was. No. To a people who are fixated on looking behind them and returning to what they perceive as the good old days, which weren't as good, which are never as good as we remember, to a people who are fixated on looking back, the Lord beckons, God pledges to deliver their freedom, their release, not to go back to the way life was, but instead to move forward to live life as it was always intended, as God created it to be. What is anticipated in this divine ode to joy is not the resurgence or restoration of the perceived former greatness of Israel. Make Israel great again. It is the reimagining, it is the transformation of the people's conception of what true greatness is. Or more broadly, our human understanding of what the good life is. And from what the Lord lays out, the good life, true greatness, is marked by freedom for all. Freedom for all persons and a shared commitment to justice where the scales are particularly balanced in favor of those most in need. Not coincidentally, the exact commission given through this song to proclaim freedom for the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this is direct language lifted from God's earlier directions given generations ago, generations ago, for observing what was called the Jubilee 
recorded all the way back in the book of Leviticus, the year of Jubilee, if we're not familiar with it, the year of Jubilee was part of the Lord's instructions for how his people, the Israelites, were to live together in their new home, the promised land, after having been formerly enslaved in Egypt. Set down as a practice to be observed every 50th year, that is, once every generation, the year of Jubilee involved the forgiveness of all debts, the release of all those working in bondage, and the equitable redistribution of the land among all the people. The year of Jubilee was intended not only to be a reminder, not only to be a reminder of the way life was supposed to be, the year of Jubilee was also serving as a practical forced reset for beginning again in actually living life as God created it to be. But if you know the story, if you know your Bible, curiously, tragically, there is no recorded evidence that the year of Jubilee was ever practiced by any generation of Israel. But what humanity has repeatedly failed to put into action, whether by forgetfulness or willful ignorance, the Lord declares will now become a reality. The recalibration and perfect balancing of the social and economic relationships among humankind no longer, catch this, no longer observed every 50 years, but practiced permanently, celebrated perpetually, and if we take this now to heart and think, wow, wow, this sounds like uh, the initiation of some strange new radical world order. The truth is, it's actually as old as time itself. Because the song that Isaiah sings on God's behalf, it harkens back to the original harmony, the original harmony built into the fabric of all creation before everything fell apart. And that original fabric built into all creation is what in Hebrew is known as shalom. Maybe you've heard that word before, shalom. Shalom encompasses universal wholeness, mutual prosperity, abiding peace in all of life. Life as it was meant to be. Life as it was before we divorced ourselves from our creator. Before, in divorcing ourselves from our creator, we ended up reducing the sum of the human experience to survival of the fittest, to a never-ending division, an ongoing rivalry between the haves and the have-nots. And we do well to pay attention to exactly how this song progresses. We like to jump to the end where it talks about restoration and renewal and rebuilding. We like that. But don't miss the power to rebuild and the potential for restoration and renewal in our lives and in our communities is inextricably linked. It's linked, inseparably linked to first embracing and then sharing the freedom God offers on his terms. Freedom again, not to live for ourselves, not to live in pursuit of our own interests, our safety, our security, our prosperity, but the freedom to live together, looking out for each other's interests, advocating for the safety, security, and prosperity of all persons, but especially the poor. 
the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners, as well as those who mourn and grieve. Now, perhaps we're thinking, this is, well, this is all well and good, Pastor Chris. What does this song, as wonderful as it may be, have to do with Christmas? And it's a good question. And the answer is, we know this is a Christmas song because this is the same anthem both Zechariah and Mary were separately prompted to sing in response to the angelic announcement of the coming birth of Jesus. On the other side of his initial doubts about the arrival of the Lord's salvation, after a divinely imposed silence covering the nine months of his wife Elizabeth's pregnancy, Zechariah belted out this same song as he held in his arms his newly born son John, John the Baptist, who would become the forerunner of the Messiah. And Mary, like Zechariah, could not keep from singing this tune. In response to her cousin's spirit-filled proclamation that the child Mary was carrying to term was the long-promised Messiah, Mary burst out in her own magnificent rendition of this same song. Oh, the words of their individually divine-inspired choruses of praise and promise, the words may be different, but if we look and listen carefully to the songs of Zechariah and Elizabeth, if we look and listen carefully to the melody, the overarching theme of their songs is exactly the same as this first one heard in Isaiah 61. Beloved, we know this is a Christmas song. Dare we say it, it is the Christmas song. Because these words and lyrics encompass the fullness of what Christmas is all about. Humanity's deliverance and all creation's redemption by our creator. In a much deeper and wider sense, Isaiah 61 conveys what the great company of the heavenly host of angels heralded once upon a midnight clear to shepherds watching their flocks by night. This song breaks down what peace on earth and goodwill to all people tangibly looks like in practice. And yet, the sticklers among us might still ask, but how can we know this is God's favorite Christmas song? It's a bold claim, Pastor Chris. Yes, it is. It's a bold claim. Now, the immediate and obvious answer, answer of how we know this is God's favorite Christmas song, the immediate and obvious answer is this is the only Christmas song our Creator wrote. Every other good and true Christmas song is but a derivative of this one. But we can amplify our certainty that this is indeed God's favorite Christmas song with even more evidence. Consider this. Many, many years later, after his birth in Bethlehem, as Jesus began what he was born to do, and the news about him, his teachings and his works were spreading. As Jesus came back home to where he grew up in Nazareth, and the time came, the time came for him to place himself and his ministry within the framework of the biblical story, Jesus intentionally turned to this passage and began to sing this song from Isaiah 61. Jesus sang this song the same song that his mother Mary joyously caroled while he was in her womb. But 
As Jesus serenaded the hometown crowd with this well-known tune, he made it his own. He made it his own, if you remember, as when he finished, Jesus declared this song that previously had been sung as a means of hopeful protest. Jesus said that protest of hope was now a promise fulfilled through his coming. In other words, Jesus presented this song as being about him, explaining both why he came and what he was doing and therefore revealing who he is, the long-promised Messiah. Beloved, Isaiah 61 is God's favorite Christmas song because the words of this song are the words that become flesh in Jesus Christ. For the one who comes in the spirit of the Lord, the one who arrives not only to proclaim the good news of our salvation, but to enact the inauguration, not of our year, but of our life of jubilee, the one who comes to bind the brokenhearted, to release those imprisoned in darkness, to comfort all who mourn, is none other than God himself. Jesus is the incarnation, the realization of the full abundant and everlasting life repeatedly envisioned and tirelessly, tirelessly proclaimed all those many passing years by the prophets of old. Because what we witness in the life of Jesus, what we witness is more than just talk about changing the world for the better. In the posture, in the teachings, in the actions of Jesus, we witness the embodiment of the life we were meant to live, of the relationship we long to have with our Heavenly Father, with each other, and even with our very selves. Because in a broken world predisposed to conflict, Jesus lived peaceably. In a broken world, predisposed to draw lines of separation, Jesus crossed every boundary and barrier that keeps us at a distance. In a broken world, predisposed to fear and judge those who are different, those who have failed, those who are perceived as enemies, Jesus continually modeled acceptance, extended forgiveness, and practiced loving service. In a broken world, predisposed to elevate and admire the rich, the successful, and the famous, all the while labeling and neglecting the average, the poor, the sinners, Jesus treated all persons with dignity and respect while still elevating and advocating for the poor, the abused, the forsaken, in a broken world predisposed to compromise. What's wrong with compromise for the sake of laying hold of power, for the sake of trying to exercise more control in a broken world predisposed to compromise for the sake of getting more power or exercising more control, often, by the way, done in the name of the state or in the name of God, to a broken world predisposed to compromise for the sake of more power or more control in the name of the state or in the name of God, Jesus humbly surrendered power. Jesus 
humbly surrendered, seizing control, even to the point of giving up his own life. Instead of taking matters into his own hands, Jesus daily offered his will to the ultimate power and control of our Heavenly Father. And in dying, in living and dying this way, out of the divine truth of unconditional love and limitless grace, Jesus rises from the ashes of this broken world and offers us not just the model, but the means for our life to be healed, for all creation to be transformed forever and ever. Because on the other side of his resurrection, his victory over death, Jesus gives to us Church, Jesus gives to us the spirit that was first upon him. The spirit that sets us free. The spirit that releases us from darkness. The spirit that can turn our mourning into dis- and our despair over what we have lost in the moment into everlasting joy and praise through the assurance of our eternal redemption. In other words, beloved... Do you get it? Do you hear it? God is still singing this song over you and me. For while we live on the other side of the inauguration of God's promises, while the opening lines of this song are being fulfilled all around us, we have not yet reached the crescendo of this anthem. The final resounding note of its conclusion of all things once and forever being made new. And that's why we keep celebrating Christmas. Not simply to look back Toward the first Christmas, Christ's birth into our broken world. Yes, indeed, we look back and we celebrate that. But we keep celebrating Christmas so that we also keep our eyes forward. Anticipating the last Christmas. The fullness of our rebirth in Christ. Into a completely changed world. Into a fully transformed creation. It's not the best analogy but perhaps an insightful way to conceive where we find ourselves in the story of salvation is to think about ordering something online, say from Amazon. How many of us have ordered a gift for somebody off of Amazon this Christmas season? Please raise your hand. Well, whether you have or you haven't, this is what happens with Amazon. When we order a gift off of Amazon, we get an initial response via email that says our order has been placed. A little while later, we get a follow-up email that says our order has been fulfilled. Having been fulfilled means what we ordered, whatever we ordered, has left Amazon's processing center and is on the way. Do we have the package yet? No. It's not on our doorstep but it's on the way. It's coming. And that is where we find ourselves. In one sense, Christmas has come. Christmas has come. God has come down and through the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has fulfilled his pledge to be with and for us. But at the same time, Christmas is still on the way. It's coming still coming. For through the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus continues to be born anew as Christ both works in and through us, growing us, 
cultivating all creation into the fullness of the restoration and renewal that God promises. We are living in the middle of the song our creator continues to sing over us. Receiving indications, catching glimpses now and then of how the kingdom of God is inbreaking into this world of the arrival, of the change, of the transformation the Lord is bringing in and through us. Beloved, the song isn't over yet. There are still more choruses to come in God's favorite Christmas song. And some of us need to hear that today. Some of us need to hear there are more choruses to come in God's favorite Christmas song. Some of us need to hear that today, to hear these words of promise that the assurance that the music is still playing It may be your faith that's in shambles these days. It may be your faith, your doubts, your doubts about God, your doubts about yourself, your doubts about others have become greater than your convictions. It may be that your joy is hard to come by right now. Your joy. While everyone else is making merry, while for others, this must, must be the most wonderful time of the year. For you, it's nothing but a blue Christmas. A blue Christmas that's capping off what otherwise has been a hard, disappointing year. Or maybe it's your hope that's starting to fade. Your hope that's nearly gone. You've tried everything you can think of. You've exhausted all your perceived options. You've called in all your favors. And things just aren't getting any better. And you're beginning to think they never will. If that's you, if that's us, the good news is the song isn't over yet. There are still many more choruses to come in God's favorite Christmas song. Jesus is about to be born anew into our lives and world. God is coming once again in Christ to set us free from whatever is holding us captive. Into the captivity of our chronic lack of faith, God sings. Jesus will deliver the forgiveness and peace, the assurance and courage which we cannot muster from within ourselves into the captivity of our debilitating lack of joy. God sings. Jesus will release us from the darkness of our grief, our sense of loss, any guilt or shame that may be burdening us into the captivity of our frightening lack of hope. God sings. Jesus will rebuild upon the rubble of all our broken dreams, our failed opportunities. And Jesus will restore our vision and our confidence in putting the work and weight of our lives upon something that lasts, something that will stand the test of time. Beloved, there are still more choruses to come in God's favorite Christmas song. And you need to hear that today because how we see the future shapes the way we live in the present. 
how we see the future shapes the way we live in the present. It doesn't take much if we're not paying attention If we insist on trying to make Christmas much like our lives, if we insist on trying to make Christmas happen ourselves, it doesn't take much for us to end up exchanging our birthright, thanks to Jesus, our birthright of assured redemption and continual renewal, to exchange our birthright, thanks to Jesus, for a bowl of generic holiday platitudes and wishful thinking. Because the future Jesus extends to us isn't something for us to put on layaway for tomorrow. When death is at our door. No, the future that Jesus extends to us is intended to be claimed. And it's intended for us to begin living here and now. How we see the future shapes the way we live in the present And we are to live in the present, individually and corporately, being shaped by the future God is preparing for us. Allowing old mindsets and bad habits, allowing those things that pull us away from abiding in Jesus, allowing those things to give way by the Spirit to regarding our time on this earth, to regard others no longer from a worldly point of view but rather an eternal one. To embody practices that reflect the new creation that is ours, that we are becoming in Christ. Beloved, the reason why it's so important we recognize what God's favorite Christmas song is, that we know the words, that we become familiar with the melody, is not only so that we listen to hear it being played in our lives, but also so that we join the chorus. For the message of the song, the meaning of Christmas is not just to receive, but also to give, to share with each other, to share with the world around us the faith, the hope, the love, the joy, the peace of Christ. We cannot, we must not act like Jesus isn't here, that Jesus is somehow hidden or removed from all that's happening around us because to believe in the song, to follow and sing God's favorite Christmas song is to recognize we are the body of Christ. In the same way that Mary carries Jesus and delivers him to the world, so we too carry the Spirit of Christ and we get the sacred opportunity day after day after day to deliver Jesus into the arms of this world. And all it takes, all it takes by the grace of God, all it takes by the grace of God is reflecting the character of Christ in all we say and do. All it takes by the grace of God is releasing others into the freedom God offers, releasing others into the freedom God offers rather than holding them captive to our desires and expectations. All it takes by the grace of God is rebuilding and restoring broken relationships instead of causing division and tearing others down. All it takes by the grace of God is choosing, choosing to forgive, to forgive and extend mercy rather than holding a grudge and choosing to retaliate. 
all it takes by the grace of God is offering comfort. Offering comfort. All it takes by the grace of God is acknowledging, making room for those who mourn. Instead of pretending not to notice. Instead of trying to rush them through their grief. My friends, as the year comes to a close, as the days shorten and grow cold, as we continue to light candles in the dark, anticipating Christmas that once again draws near, let us hear the lyrics and music of Isaiah 61. Let us hear the lyrics and music of Isaiah 61 as the assurance that there never is and there never will be a moment when God is not with and for us. When God is not singing over us and making flesh his promises of freedom, of comfort, of restoration. But let us not only hear and take God's favorite Christmas song to heart, let us also add our voices. Let us add our voices to the divine chorus as the Spirit of Christ stirring within us beckons us not only to be changed for the better, but through the Spirit working through us to be a part of remaking this world into the very best it can be. Because this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.